Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio, with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. Hopefully you all have emerged happy, healthy, fully conscious, and only a little bit fatter from your tryptophan comas over the Thanksgiving holiday weekend. And with the aim of bringing you back to reality with a bang, we have a very special episode of the podcast for you this week. An episode, or rather a pair of episodes, modeled in duration and ambition on the kind of deep dive discussions that this media makes possible, that masters of long-form interviews such as Howard Stern have turned into a high art, and that inspired me to launch a podcast in the first place. That moment of inspiration, for the record, came last spring when the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic devastation it unleashed and the post-George Floyd racial justice protests erupting from coast to coast and Donald Trump's tear gassing of demonstrators in Lafayette Square when all of that was hurling the country into a state of comprehensive convulsion. When everyone I was talking to, from congenital optimists to bone-deep pessimists to the vast swath of folks in between, was consumed with a searing sense of apocalyptic dread. I mean, some serious end-time feels, and I thought to myself, let's pull together the most compelling and complex and clarifying voices we can find, not just from politics, but from the worlds of culture, entertainment, sports, business, technology, science, law, food, really from any and every orbit, and talk this shit out. Naturally, from the very beginning, I was making lists of the folks I most wanted to have on the pod, and near the top of every list I ever made was our guest today, a guy who was at once one of the most vital figures in the world of hip-hop and progressive activism today, Killer Mike. The state of the union for black people is pretty much what it's always been. A white guy's in charge. Michael Santiago Render is a man wearing many hats. As an artist, he's best known as one half alongside the rapper and producer LP, of the duo known as Run the Jewels, which in June of this year released its fourth record since 2013, RTJ4, and my God, what a record it is. Universally hailed not just for its artistry, but its timeliness, a record that captures the mood and gestalt of this fucked up year more than any other album of 2020. The headline from Vulture summed it up thus, Run the Jewels 4 is exactly what America needs to hear right now. The New York Times, which calls the group's work, quote, paranoiac, dystopian, anti-government, and pro-justice, chimed in that the new album is, quote, a galvanizing reminder that millions of people feel just as you do and are burning for change. But Mike Render is more than a force of nature with a pen and on the mic. In both 2016 and 2020, he was among the most visible, vocal, impassioned, and politically sophisticated of the many celebrity endorsers and surrogates working on behalf of Bernie Sanders. In the wake of George Floyd's public execution, when protests verged on getting out of control in Mike's beloved home city of Atlanta, he stood alongside Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms and delivered a heartfelt plea not to torch the place that rapidly went viral and earned him a whole new legion of admirers around the country. As the proprietor of the Swag Shop Barbershop on Edgewood Avenue, he is a member of the Black-owned business community in Atlanta and an outspoken player in the civic life of a state, Georgia, that is now, and for at least the next few weeks, the central battleground in American politics. In the 72 hours before Election Day, I was racing around the country from state to state for my series on Showtime, The Circus, and we caught up with Mike at the Swag Shop on Election Eve. We talked about race and police violence, about COVID and urban America, Democrats and Republicans, Biden and Trump, the Georgia Senate races, Stacey Abrams and Barack Obama, who'd just been through town that afternoon for a final rally. Oh, and also Dave Chappelle, who happened to be in Atlanta that evening, workshopping the monologue he would deliver the Saturday night after the election on SNL. So yeah, we talked about all these topics, but only briefly. So I told Mike then that I wanted him and needed him to come on the pod once we knew the election's outcome so we could chop the shit up in the way it deserved to be chopped up. Real rap, no cap, as Mike likes to put it. Thankfully, he said sure. And so here we are 
with the first ever two-part episode of this podcast. That's right. We have taken this epic gab fest and split the baby clean in half. So download them both, then settle in and absorb part one, then take a bathroom break or roll a blunt or whatever floats your boat and come back and hunker down with part two or just listen to the two parts straight through back to back. I don't really give a shit. It's up to you. But however you decide to listen, you are not going to want to miss a second of what my friend, my brother, Mike Render, lays down here, a fiery, bracing, ratatat Jeremiah that goes places I did not expect, some of which you might disagree with, some of which might make you mad, but that will definitely make you think anew about a bunch of stuff and will never leave you bored, and that more than any episode we've done so far embodies the spirit and aspirations of Hell and High Water. Well, it's easier to be a parent this morning. It's easier to be a dad. It's easier It's easier to tell your kids character matters. It matters. Telling the truth matters. Being a good person matters. And it's easier for a whole lot of people. If you're Muslim in this country, you, you, you don't have to worry if the president doesn't want you here. If you're an immigrant... You don't have to worry if the president's going to be happier to have babies snatched away or send, send dreamers back for no reason. This is vindication for a lot of people who have really suffered. You know, the, the, I can't breathe. You know, that wasn't just George Floyd. That was a lot of people that felt that they couldn't breathe. Every day you're waking up and you're getting these tweets and you just don't know. And you're going to the store and, and people who have been afraid to show their racism are getting nastier and nastier to you. And you're worried about your kids and you're worried about your sister. And, and can she just go to Walmart and, and get back into the, her car without somebody saying something to her? And, 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 and you spent so much of your life energy just trying to hold it together. And this is a big deal. For us just to be able to get some peace. That was Van Jones uh, yes. on CNN. And Mike, I, um, we got a lot to talk about here, but I wanted to play that because, you know, I, I was with you in Atlanta on election eve. And, yeah. And we haven't talked since then. Van, in, back in 2016, I remember he, he got on the air and he said that Trump's election was a white lash. And there was a piece of video that went very viral. And then this video from from this four years later, also viral, very emotional, in yeah. tears, talking about how much it meant for Joe Biden to beat Donald Trump in this election. And I played it because I wanted you to hear it because it's obviously resonant for a lot of people. It's like, I don't know, probably 10 million people who watch that video. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious as to like, when you hear Van Jones, as we, it's a good starting point for us, like, does that resonate for you? Did you feel something like that? What did you feel when it became clear Joe Biden had won and Donald Trump had lost. I have a huge amount of love and respect for man. And let me say, it's not easy for a man ways in Western society to cry. It's not easy for you to cry on camera, especially. I, I speaking as a man who have who's held back tears and cried on camera, I honestly felt the brother to my bone. I, I, I honestly felt his sentiment and emotion um, because it is not always easy as a protector and a provider, you know, and a procreator. There's a Southern man, I'm taught, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to procreate, protect, and provide, right? It's, it's not easy to feel helpless. 
And every time your wife, your children, your mother, your sisters, even your dad leaves the house and out of your direct protection for the last four years, because people who did not look like you had become more emboldened in their prejudices, bigotries, and racism, you felt more out of control. And so I understood what he was saying. I would also like to say that from the black side of things, there's often a saying of I'm not my ancestors. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll use these hands and other bullshit. Well, we're not our ancestors because we're not as fucking tough as they are. Our grandparents and great grandparents and ancestors before dealt with what we've dealt with the last four years in terms of an emboldened part of the proletariat seeing you as a second class citizen times 10 times 20 and times of 100. I think it was Lester Maddox said segregation now, segregation forever. You know, you got to look at people like George Wallace, who later changed his philosophy. But our parents and grandparents dealt with what we've dealt with tenfold and greater. So we have experienced what is called freedom for 57 years. And the last four years of that 57 was a real punch in the face wake up call that racism has not been eradicated. That bigotry has not been eradicated. And beyond that, under the helm of our former president, um, Donald Trump, it was emboldened. So I was glad to know that cancer is there. So now we can work on getting to the cure. I had the opportunity over the last four years to point people toward Jane Elliott and the Bruin Blown Eye experiment, to point to her as a human being, as a person. I've had an opportunity to be involved in the progressive movement that marches us all forward as a united proletariat, no matter race, creed, of color. I've got an opportunity in the last year after the George Floyd um, murder to see an assassination on camera for eight minutes and 47 seconds, to see the Amish come out. Literally, and stand in solidarity. Like the Amish, you're like, you know what? This enough of this bullshit. You know, I don't even those know how some, they got the word. Those are, pretty, those are pretty white people too, <laughs> that, man. That's, those, that's, that's pretty white people. whiter so. than the Amish, man. <laughs> you know what whitest, I mean? That's as white as they come. And so so I, I have been as disappointed as Van was. The work is still not done. Because racism uncovered um, for the last four years is still here. It's not going anywhere with the leaving of Donald Trump. The bigotry. The, the, we made it, why can't you make it? But you forget that you had the GI Bill. You forget that you did not have redlining. You forget that your neighborhoods were not, the roadblocks weren't illegally set up. So now that we've uncovered it, what are we going to do as a nation to heal it? What are we going to do to make sure that kindergartners know who John Brown is and Frederick Douglass? And I'm not talking about the black ones. I'm talking the ones that are white Anglo-Saxon and Protestant. What are we going to do to make sure they know who Sojourner Truth and Harriet is? And that this republic and the aspirations of freedom, justice, and equality for all of us, how do we make sure everyone... So I understand exactly how Van felt. I love and respect his allowing his emotion to show and pour because a lot of times we forget that we're dealing with other human beings, even if I disagree with you. I have to remember that I'm dealing with a human being. And oftentimes, African-Americans are handled as though we're just a lobbyist group <laughs> talking sure, on the behalf yeah. of a community when we're not a lobbyist group. We are a community. We are a community of individual human beings fighting to simply be recognized and have our rights and privileges recognized that we were promised in the United States Constitution and Bill of Rights. So I salute the brother. I support the brother. I appreciate him. But the struggle is not over because, you know, as I jokingly say, you know, white guy's still president. Yeah. It still gives you the perception that white Anglo-Saxon Protestant way is the way.
when a white guy's still president, it still gives you the perception that Western society has gotten it right all along. And we have not. The people on our dollar bills were still slave owners with the exception of my man, Abraham Lincoln, you know, and even that he said, if I could have kept the union together, y'all would have still been picking fucking cotton. So we, we have to start to approach it from an honest place and say, now that Joe's in office, we know that the problem still exists, but how do we do a better job of as a country solving those problems so that cancer, we don't get to stage four, we can start to prevent it before it even forms. So there's a lot to, obviously a lot to unpack, and we're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff today. Um, but I, I want to just stick with this for one thing, right? Which is, you just said a bunch of things about Dan, which were like, respected my support of my, you know, all that stuff. I guess the, the one thing you didn't say is I feel him, right? Like, no, I did say I, I mean, feel him. I felt to my no, core. No, no what, I, what I meant, what I meant to is the, like, did you forget about Van? Like the thing about that bite. Is oh, that, I live in the South, so I'm not relieved. No, I don't have that sense well, that's, of relief. Well, that's what I meant. That's what I no, mean. Absolutely like, not. No, absolutely not. The no, sense no. of like, he's in tears. And again, I, I praise like any man who can go on national television and show their tears. I'm, I, I think that's, yes. that's admirable. Yes. Yes. But, but a lot of people had a lot of emotion about this, right? That, yeah. you know, in that day, outside my window here in New York City, you know, people were blowing their car horns. People were dancing in the streets. Yeah. Dancing yeah. in the streets all over America. Yeah. You know, all over the world, there were people who were genuinely like uplifted, emotional, energized and, and weeping over this. Right. And, yeah. I, and I, I couldn't help it that I couldn't help wonder whether, yeah, I mean, I know you are glad that, that Donald Trump is no longer president of the United States, but whether you felt any, like what did something well up inside you? No, or were you just kind of like, not. absolutely not. Absolutely not. Joe Biden still wrote the 94 crime bill. Joe Biden still has not said he will sign HR 40, which is a, a study to uh, the, the John Connors bill presented since 1989 to start the study of reparations. reparations. Joe Biden, although he did finally concede that the 94 crime bill did more harm than good, he has not said, this is what I would do with wipe away. He has not said he would end um, qualified immunity for police officers. So there's, there's a laundry list of shit that he hasn't promised to do or that he hasn't jumped on board with that will not allow me to cry and okay. to simply say, I feel better now because I don't. And, and, and I won't until we get some results. Right. And the last time thing I'm going to say about Van Jones is he says at the very end of that bite, he says, you know, it's a big, important moment because we can it allows us to get some peace. That was the, the final quote at the yeah. end of that bite. Yeah. Is there any sense that you feel like that the fact that, you know, 80 million Americans roughly, as opposed to the 73 million that voted for Donald Trump and others, some 80 million on the other side who stood, got up. And I don't know, we'll never know how many of those 80 million people voted for Joe Biden versus voted against Donald Trump. But I would yeah. want to wager that a lot of them, a lot of them, a lot of them were basically like, I am going to vote for anybody who's not Donald Trump. We want to get yeah. rid of this motherfucker. Yeah. Is that not at least a sign of something that gives you, like, do you get a little peace out of that, knowing that, that like, you know, there's a little bit of a majority for not Donald Trump? Ain't no rest for the weary. Yeah. Ain't yeah. no rest for the weary, right? The battle to elect a new president was won. But the war to make sure that every American, especially black people who have been the cornerstone of the economic success of this country by giving them the economic head start. Um, and I mean the black people that were brought here on boats, you know, not, not the black people that were allowed to come in because of immigration laws that were passed because the black people who came on boats, their descendants protested like shit in the 60s, right? Not to split us up, but the black people that essentially have been here since 1619, you know, there's a moment of, of peace and, and, and we won this battle, but the war for full 
honoring of rights and privileges is far from one. We're only 57 years into freedom and we could end and eradicate racism in 20 years in this country. Part of the scary part about electing a Biden to me or feeling too at peace right now is that we have not committed to the 20 year eradication of, of racism. We have not fully committed to that as a nation, as a nation, as a proletariat, as a group of people, we have not fully committed to eradicating the original sin of America and slavery in terms of racism being used as an excuse for slavery. And the country is not atoned for it. And we have not committed ourselves to eradicating it. And until we fully do that, no matter how peaceful the moment is, peace will never properly prevail because justice has not prevailed. Okay, so that's a pretty good place for us to take a little break and go and do some business, uh, listen to some advertisements, pay some bills for Hell and High Water, and we'll be right back with more of Killer Mike. We are back with Killer Mike Render uh, talking about what happened in this election. And, you know, on one level, there's, you know, the national result. And then there's what happened in the battleground states. And maybe the biggest, most important, like surprising and unexpected thing that happened was Joe Biden won Georgia. You have been in Georgia for a long time, and it's not since Bill Clinton in 1992 has the Democrat been able to win at the presidential level in Georgia. Is yeah. that a gratifying thing? Is that a big deal? I've lived under Democratic governors for most of my life until they changed the flag. And when they changed that flag, we've had Republican governors ever since. Georgians are quirky, tricky people. I can't tell you that the right thing was done for the right reasons. Just the right thing was done. The right thing was done in electing Biden in terms of us pushing the line, but I can't say it was done for the right reasons. I don't know if it was done because I want to see everyone treated equally fairly in terms of having opportunity or my president is embarrassing me. You know, white Southerners are Gentile people in their racism. <laughs> I ain't talking about the poor whites that, that tend to get labeled, right? The, the white planner or Southern class 200 years ago invented the word, well, longer than that, invented the word crackers, right? It, it described poor white people that moved around like gypsies to Georgia, Tennessee, right? I'm not talking about the people that would be classified as crackers. Genteel Southern white people like their racism in a nice pretty box. They like their bigotry or their level above or their classism in a nice pretty box. So I can't say that they voted for Joe for just and righteous reasons so that all people have equal opportunity, more so than they just were tired of the ugly stain that Donald Trump gave white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in this country. Yeah. That's not on me to call. It's on them to show. Yeah, because yeah, sure. it's going gonna, it's gonna to be on them to show January 5th. It is going to be on them to show under Georgia's legislation. Like we have marijuana legislation in the pipeline in Georgia. How many of those same people are going to go back and say, well, if we only have 10 growers licensed, Georgians are 35% African-Americans, 3.5 of those should be African-American, right? Now, that's to me when the proof's in the pudding. Don't just invite me to your party, <laughs> you know what I mean, if I'm not going to have any ownership or stake in it. It's not enough for me to have a leadership that doesn't offend me. I want to fully participate in this great republic. And if I'm not allowed to, you are less ugly, but just as culpable in the racism that Donald Trump emboldened. You know, just to stick with the Senate race, right? 
the control of the United States Senate in play. Two races, January 5th, yep. tons of money, tons of energy, all of that shit. Everybody's going to focus on it. But I'll tell you this, okay? I'm a hard-bitten, cynical, cold-eyed political reporter and analyst, right? Yep. What happens in runoff elections is the- People the don't show back up. The electorate gets smaller, right? Yep. You take a presidential race off the top of the ticket, and historically speaking- People don't show back up. People don't show back up. And yep. you guys had in Georgia, led by Stacey Abrams, you had a big surge in black participation in the state yeah. for this presidential election. You had a lot of a lot of big black participation in 2018 too. But the cynical view, the, cold, the, the conventional wisdom of the Washington smart guys would be like, you know what? Republicans are favored in both these races, man, because that turnout's going to drop and it's going to be irregular voters who don't show up. And that means a lot of black people aren't going to show up. And when yeah. they don't show up, Republicans are going to show up and these Senate seats are going to go red. Do you look at that and say that, yeah, I hear that, man. That's like, I think that I, we got a lot to worry about. Or do you think that there's going to be like sustained engagement at the level of the Stacey Abrams world and all of the people who've done all this work and, and, and did incredible things? Yeah. But are people going to show up for this January election? Stacey Abrams is a superhero, right? She's a superhero. Yeah. She's a member of the Justice League, though. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, if the progressives on the ground in Georgia did not shake shit up, we would have not had a superhero to be the tip of the spear. If Bernie Sanders does not endorse Abrams, she does not get the following from Georgia progressives that she rightfully deserved. If Bernie Sanders was not convinced by Michael Rinder, who was convinced by Nina Turner. It still all goes back to a dynamic-ass black woman. Nina Turner aggravated the shit out of me for two weeks, right? Yeah. Get him to support Stacey. You're on the ground. You know why it's important, Michael. Get him to do it. After two weeks, I'm like, Nina, you know what? You're right. All right. I call Sanders. Here's why Stacey can be effective. This is why it should work. Sanders electrifies on the ground progressives, progressives that had even been apprehensive about Abrams literally got behind her in full force. So I want to, first of all, salute beyond our superhero, Stacey, the progressives in Georgia, the progressives like Mayor Ted, who's now commissioner, the more progressive politicians like Fonnie Willis, who, who got to be DA in, in, in Fulton County. The progressives really showed up. Will progressives take their ass back out January 5th? Absolutely, they will because they're young. They're willing to do it. But we better engage them with something for them. We can't simply go back to typical total line Democratic Party politics and say we have given you a messiah like figure in Abrams. Go do what she says. It's not going to be enough. Because if we do that, what you're going to do is ostracize once again those progressives that came out and mobilized. What we have to do now is realize the Democratic Party now is not only just the old guard of the Democratic Party. It is a young, fiery bunch of kids that she got registered to vote. She helped to mobilize and that worked their ass off. So I want to thank not only Stacey. I want to thank the Bernie Kratz and progressives on the ground. And I'd like to do a huge big shout out because she deserves it and rarely gets the recognition she deserves. Nina Turner. Nina Turner saw this race happening months ago. I mean, a year ago. She pushed the line because she understood that progressives in Georgia needed to be electrified. So I got to give it not only to Stacey, not only to Keisha, not only to Kamala, but also to Nina Turner. 
She is the leader right now to me of the progressive party. So in saying, can Stacey get them out? Yeah, but if we only depend on Stacey, absolutely not. It is going to take a group effort. It is going to take all of those young progressives that came out of the Sanders campaign after it was suspended and followed Nina directly into supporting other people. It is going to take us engaging politicians nationally like Nina that are still progressive, and it is going to take engaging progressives on the ground like former Mayor Ted, now six-seat commission holder. And if we don't, then we're going to lose. And that's just that goddamn simple. Republicans in Georgia are not dumb. They plot, plan, strategize, and mobilize very effectively. (laughs) And, And I would argue that if we do not, then we're going to see either the two candidates get obliterated or we're going to see a 50-50 split, which still does not give you the win that you're looking for. So right now, you know, Donald Trump and the Republicans who are enabling him, not uh-huh. they're just starting to kind of call him out and say, hey, you know what? This fucking race is overdue. This bullshit you're doing here, trying to like not get the vote certified, trying to mess the Electoral College, trying to claim voter fraud that didn't happen, all that shit. So you got to stop that shit. Just starting to happen right now, right? Yeah. But, but what's been clear in Michigan, in Georgia, in Pennsylvania, in a bunch of places, there's a clear racist fucking thing that runs through all of that, which is like, hey, don't count the votes in Detroit. Don't go. Well, there's some shit that happened in Atlanta, yeah, yeah. right? So it's yeah. obvious, right? So my question about that is not, you and I are supposed smart enough to know that you can see it's not, you don't take, you don't need to have 2020 vision to see the racism of the shit they're doing, right? Yes. But my question is, because Trump is just all about Trump and he doesn't give a shit about the Republican Party. He doesn't care who controls the Senate going forward. No, he doesn't care about, about that. Is Trump, by pursuing these agendas that he has and asking Republicans to come along for the ride with him at this moment, is he not doing something that could make very clear to progressives in Georgia? Like, I, if I'm if I'm a, a progressive on the ground in Georgia, I'm watching this president and his party trying to invalidate my vote in the in the in the presidential election, I would think that would raise the stakes for me and make it under make me understand why it matters so much that I participate on January fifth because that party over there, if it was if it was up to them, they would take my vote away that I just cast. Yeah, on but, November third. Yeah, but with that said, people still got to go to fucking work. You know, people still got to do shit on January five. I think Sanders had a beautiful idea in making election days national holidays. Our country should stop and pause on on election days. They should be as important as the high and holy holidays of any religion, right? We should make sure that every American has full opportunity. We don't. So life just might get in the way. But what I want to say is one of the most intelligent things I read on Twitter. So I grew up in Atlanta listening to very conservative and very liberal radio. There was a guy named Neil Bortz. And for years and years and years, Bortz was on air with a progressive producer named Royal, God bless the dead, and a woman named Donna, um, who was kind of in the middle. And he would spew these outlandishly libertarian and overtly Republican things, and people would argue and get all excited. But every now and again, Neil said very practical things that kept me engaged as a kid. I'm listening to him. He said on Twitter this week, the smartest thing Trump can do right now to help Republicans win the Senate race in Georgia is to simply say, congratulations to to Joe Biden on winning and shut up. Because the more Trump talks and tries to co-opt, the more invigorated progressives are going to be on the ground. So him actually being an asshole in this moment, 
I feel is helping the two Democratic senatorial candidates in Ossoff and Warnock more than he realizes. And I think that Republicans are starting to realize that if we stay on the Trump board, we stand to lose because it's not a good thing to be standing next to him right now. Right. But we'll see what happens. I can't call these. I, I, well, actually, I'm thinking that, you know, worst case scenario, we get a 50-50. Best case scenario, we get both guys in. There's a bunch of stuff I want to unpack that we just talked about. But before we do that, I want to ask you this. So Donald Trump in this election got more votes than he got last time. I was among the people in the course of the last four years who said, hey, you know what, Donald Trump, what's different about Donald Trump? He's not He's not tried to expand his base at all. He just caters to the people who voted for him in 2016. I don't know anybody who voted for Hillary Clinton who's now going to vote for Donald Trump. He'll not, he can't, he's not added any votes to his coalition. And then he gets 8 million more votes, 10 million more votes than he got last time, right? Yeah. Among the people he got more votes from is he got more black votes than he got last time. That's yeah. just a fact, okay? Yeah. And here's, and here's my question, okay? And now I'm, it's, very, it's a very particular question. I'm, and I'm dying to hear you address this because I've been thinking about you as this stuff was happening all of this year. Kanye, Lil Wayne, Ice Cube. Kanye third party thing with a little bit of like behind the scenes backing of like the Kushner people who are like trying to get him to go out there and do it, right? Lil Wayne endorsed him, okay? Cube didn't endorse him, but yeah, kind of worked, you know, went behind the scenes, got a lot of attention and controversy about having discussed their plan for black America with them behind the scenes. They tried to make Cube a tacit endorser of the Trump people. Yeah. I'm interested to know what you thought there was suddenly this thing at the end of this election cycle where all of a sudden there were some big esteemed names in hip hop who suddenly were like either on team Trump or team Trump adjacent. And Trump did better with black voters than he did last time, even yeah. after the last four years. Yeah. I just want you to talk about all of that because there's no one I know in hip hop who's smarter than you about politics. Uh, and, 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 I know, and I know Cube. I know Cube, right? I don't know Lil Wayne at all. Yeah. I know Cube. But I, but you, you are the most politically sophisticated hip hop guy I know. So I want you to explain to me what all Kanye is obviously fucking just nuts. But, but, <laughs> God but bless that's a different easy. thing. But that's, but, but I want you to understand. I want you to do some. I want you to apply your political smarts. Okay. Your musical understanding of the hip hop community, and the broader question of how Trump, with in the middle of all of this, he somehow came out the back door with more black votes than he came in with. Okay. How that? Like, tell me about all that stuff, brother. All right. So before we get to the black shit. Let me just say to the Democratic Party, you are doing a shit job of engaging black men. Terribly shitty job of engaging, in particular, working class black men. I said this four years ago. I said this two years ago. And I'm saying this now. When you do shit like say, well, black women vote for us 93% of the time and black men vote for us 90% of the time, you are splitting the black vote and you're creating oppositions in one house. There's not that big of a difference between that 3%. And then you have to start to say to yourself, well, why would a black man engage a Republican party in Trump and not continue to engage the Democratic party? Why don't we have 93% amongst black men? Well, let's talk about long-term prison sentences. And how many men I know who serve federal time for nonviolent drug offenders, offensive on the West Coast in particular that I know that have come out and says, Mike, I will never vote for a Democrat again in my life. I did 30 years under Democrats. And you got to sit with that shit. You got to literally like think about what I just said. I was 15 years old when some of these men went to jail. I am 45 years old now. 
How could I look them in their eyes and then say, well, I want you to vote for the guy that wrote the law and proudly stood on the Senate floor and it's alluded to you being super predators. Without that guy saying, I'm sorry, I made a fucking mistake and here is my plan to make it right. I plan to give a quarter of all national marijuana business to you. I plan to make sure that there's a pathway directly out of prison into business ownerships, particularly in the marijuana. So I got to say to the Democratic Party, that's your fucking fault because you can do a better job of engaging not only black people, but in particular, black working class men. We have become as black people as a community an afterthought. We're treated like a mistress or a side woman. We're called upon when you need us and we're forgotten about when you don't. So let's park that there. Now let's get to the fact that I am a student of O'Shea Jackson. I'm a student of O'Shea Jackson, better known of Ice Cube as Ice Cube. I would not be as politically sophisticated if he had not been mentored by Chuck D. And I have not been mentored by him and others, including Paris, The Coop, Cam, Brand Nubian, Wu-Tang. If I did not have exposure to these groups, I wouldn't be here. So Ice Cube is a part of my political sophistication and the education that brought me here. Ice Cube could not have been co-opted by or attempted to be co-opted by Republicans if Democrats had stepped the fuck up and simply engaged him. If they had simply engaged him to the level that the Republicans did and he offered, he said they told me to wait. It's like when you're trying to take a beautiful girl on a date. She's beautiful. You've asked her time and time. I want to take you to the prom so bad. I would love to take you to the prom, but she's waiting on the captain of the football team to take her. And then he gets another date to the prom and then she's waiting on the captain of the basketball team to take her. And he gets another date. Then she gets to the captain of the baseball team. Well, the pitcher and the catcher, they love each other. So they're going, right? And then you got to say to yourself, well, there's this other girl that's in art class. And she happens to like me. So if nothing else, I'm going to talk to her. And then the girl says, well, why didn't you wait for me? Because you got me waiting behind these three other bums. And black people often feel like that. We are waiting behind the people who legislation in the 60s that we fought for have benefited. We've waited behind the colored agenda, people of color. We've waited behind the affirmative action, which translates to white women. <laughs> we waited behind feminism. We waited behind equal marriage opportunity. We waited behind everything. And it's like Baldwin says, how long must we wait before we get an overtly black thing to say this is in reparations for, this is in consideration of, this is specifically for you. So I can't blame Ice Cube for who he talked to because he was willing to talk to everyone. I have to say to the person or the party that chose not to engage him before the prom, well, why didn't you simply accept his invite? Why didn't you simply have the discussion? And why didn't you at least look at his contract for black America and co-opt some of the things for you? That's it. Like the lift every voice plan is a solid plan, I guess, right? But even in terms of the title, it's antiquated. My grandmother lifted every voice. Yeah. Now, it didn't work for him, but Trump pushing a platinum plan at least showed that his people had some marketing savvy. Right? Right? 
So you, you know, platinum is better than gold. Yeah. So you said, hold on, what's the platinum player got in it, right? I got, yeah. I got the platinum exactly. card in my wallet. It's they also card. understood that yeah. we were being ignored by the party we had been given so much support to. And they took advantage of that. They didn't take advantage of Ice Cube. They took advantage of the missteps of the Democratic yeah. Party. So I want to challenge the party that I have overwhelmingly voted more for in my life to do a better job of engaging me, to do a better job of engaging my community and to a better job of honoring the people that have kept this party afloat in times of needs of votes. Right now, Wayne, I don't know why Wayne did the endorsement. I'm still a little Wayne fan. He is one of the greatest rappers on fucking earth. But I suspect, like 50 Cent said, they offer you a million bucks. Shit, they might have given Wayne, they offer 50 a million. Shit, Wheezy, they might have offered Wheezy three or four. You know, and shit, I wouldn't support Trump. But if you <laughs> call me with a $5 million offer, I at least got to roll over and say, Shay, they offered us five fucking million. She's going to say, go to fucking sleep. <laughs> you know what I mean? But so I, I'm sure yeah. that his endorsement yeah. was, was a paid one, right? And, um, and that's not to say right or wrong. That's simply to say, Politicians are bought by lobbyists. Politicians spread money around. In regards to, we said Kanye. My man, Kanye could not be Kanye if he was not audacious enough to feel he could be president. He could not be one of the most free and innovative thinkers on earth. He could not be a builder of one of the largest brands. He could not be a super producer. He could not be as prolific rapper with the audacious. And he got some great writers too. He could not be that. So I am not surprised by shit Yeezy does. And 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 I don't take <laughs> I don't take him seriously as a contender to win presidents, but I know that his influence in white Anglo-Saxon Protestant America because of his music is strong. So I believe that some of the votes that Trump got out of that part of America came from the fact that they say, well, you know, he was good enough for Kanye to like him. But I believe overall Trump got more black votes for the reason he said when he was running, what do you have to lose? I think black people are really yes. at the point where yes. it's a, what do we have to lose? Because the party that we have been most loyal to is not being responsible to us or accountable for us. Kanye's a genius, right? Yeah, absolutely. God damn, he's a genius. Kanye's musical. Crazy. He's a musical and artistic genius. Politically, absolutely not. And fucking crazy. Yeah, I mean, most geniuses are. I'm fucking nuts. Okay. Look at me. I, got I, I, just, I'm not, I just said both. I, yeah, yeah, He's absolutely. fucking genius. He's a genius and he's fucking nuts. Yeah, you can't you can't show me a genius that's not fucking nuts. Think about Bill Gates describing describing what what, what he was going to do 40 years ago. Think about nuts. the goddamn iPhone. Yeah, nuts. you, you got to be nuts to think of this shit. I'm sitting in a I'm sitting in a house. Yeah. I'm sitting in a house that comes out of my imagination. Right now, yeah. this house comes because I sit around like a child and think of words that rhyme. Y'all got to be fucking nuts. You're fucking nuts too. I should have went to school and got a trade yeah. and become something. So, you know, but Ice Cube definitely should have done what he's done. Little Wayne, I have no judgment for because I, I feel as though that was just, that's money. This is what it is. And with Yeezy, you got to be fucking nuts to be a genius. It comes in the same package. All right. We're going to take a break right now and pay some bills because we've gone 35 minutes listening to this man talk, which is fucking why I love him so much. <laughs> 35 minutes go by. It's like 35 seconds. I don't even know when we start. We're going to listen to some, we're going to pay some bills. We're going to come back for the next portion of our discussion here on Hell and Hell Water with Let's Mike do it. Render the killer Mike. The governor is texting me as I'm talking to you hilariously. Okay, well that's that we'll talk about that. Not nice um, not. <laughs> you'll get, we'll get you to read we'll get you to read the governor's text here. Not just wishing me a good day. <laughs> so we have an opportunity now. 
because I'm mad. I don't have any good advice. But what I can tell you is that if you sit in your homes tonight, instead of burning your home to the ground, you will have time to properly plot, plan, strategize, and organize, and mobilize in an effective way. Now is the time to do that, but it is not time to burn down your own home. I love and I respect you. I hate I don't have more to say. I hate I can't fix it in a snap. I hate Atlanta's not perfect or as good as we are. But we have to be better than this moment. We have to be better than burning down our own homes. Because if we lose Atlanta, what else we got? So that's Mike Render, Killer Mike, our guest here today on Hell and High Water. That was back in May after George Floyd got executed on the streets of Minneapolis. And shit broke out all over the country, including in his home city of Atlanta. And he got dragged, uh, dragged, I believe. Not you did not end up in the in that press conference by choice. I think. Not, not did. <laughs> I forget who is your but who is who brought you there? Ti, Ti, right? So Ti got you to come up, and you're up there with Keisha Lance Bottoms, and you gave this long speech, about eight minutes long, that went viral and and took you into a different place. And I can't tell you the number of white people I know who were like, who's this fucking killer Mike dude, man? He's fucking incredible. And that was a moment, right? In America, you know, that was a pitched moment. There was nowhere in the country where more than 100,000 people live, where there was not some racial justice moment happening. There were a lot of peaceful protests. There were some not peaceful protests. There were protests that were mostly peaceful with the little outcroppings of violence. There were a few riots. And it wasn't just in America, it was around the world. You were up there. You talked in the moment of peril for your city, a city I know you have, like any smart person, you have ambivalent feelings about. You love Atlanta and you hate Atlanta and you want the best for Atlanta yeah, and you yeah. understand the complexity <laughs> of Atlanta. It's like there's no there's no like, I love Atlanta. Here's a little heart on my, on my bumper sticker. You love Atlanta and you also fucking hate Atlanta and you want it to be better and that Absolutely. frustrates you and all Absolutely. that stuff. Absolutely. It's a relationship. I just... I want you to just talk about like when you gave that speech, I just told you what the reaction was in my world. What was the yeah. reaction like in your world? Well, let me tell you about those Southern, um, the Southern white Anglo-Saxon Protestants that probably snuck in that booth and voted for um, either Trump because they were emboldened or voted for Joe simply because it was an alternative to the grotesity, to the grossness rather of um, Trump-like bigotry and racism. Um, I think the best example and something I haven't often talked about, my accountant is a, a dear friend of mine. He's a, he's a great human being. And one of his favorite places to eat is a place called the OK Cafe. And he called and said, you know, I won't be able to go there. And I think it's milkshakes or something he likes from there. He said, my son and I won't be going there anymore. And I was like, why? What, what? I say, besides the fact that you say, I don't leave. I, I live. I, I live in my community. I purposely eat, drink. As, in, in as much as I can in my community because right. I want the dollar turning. So my wife goes to Buckhead. She shops and shit and all that other cool rap wife shit. I'm not there as often. So I don't know who, who likes or doesn't like me there. But this woman owns one of the most popular restaurants in Atlanta that hires black people, that black people have helped make this brand over the past 30, 40 years for her, um, they, their customers. And she went on a tirade that was filled with subversive racism and bigotry. Her name is Susan DeRose, I believe. And she's co-owner of the cafe and, and she chastised the mayor. She chastised me. And had I had an opportunity to simply talk to Susan before, I said, you know, Susan, I didn't want to fucking be there. But a black man was assassinated on television. 
Susan, they destroyed not your restaurant, two black restaurants in the agency in Dave's Philly cheesesteak. And then later after Rashad was killed in Atlanta, the people that bought a, a, a vehicle for his family was the owner of Dave's cheesesteak. So a black restaurant here, you didn't pop up and help Susan, but Susan was offended by my kill your master shirt. Well, Susan, I was smoking joints, eating fish with Noriega of CNN. What, 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 what? I wasn't there to tell black people to fucking kill white people, Susan. I was there to tell all Atlantans, let's be the example in these times for what is possible. But Susan's bigotry would not allow her to see past a black man, a black mayor, another black man saying, don't burn your fucking city down. Susan heard, don't burn black Atlanta down, kill white people. And that was such a disgusting thing to read. Because it helped me understand that whether Trump is president or not, Susan has held these feelings and she'll probably die with these feelings. It, it really hurt me because after 45 years in Atlanta, I really thought Atlanta had it figured out. But we don't. We're figuring it out. We're constantly adjusting. We're doing a great job of balancing, but we're still a bear on a ball juggling. At any time that ball could slip, that bear could fall and everything goes to shit. But I'm glad that she did it. I actually encouraged my guy, Robert. I said, you know, Robert, I'm not going to be mad if you still go get a milkshake. But in this time, what I hope Susan gets to see that I as a fellow business owner, because I'm not just a singer and dancer up there. I'm a fellow business owner. My business got a bullet hole through the window. I don't know if your business got that. My business was in the middle of downtown and could have been burned down. Yours is in Buckhead, Susan. We know they weren't going to goddamn burn Buckhead down, right? It hurt me because I understand now that the cancer that Donald Trump showed us that was visible, the tumor that was protruding out of our face is not gone just with cutting it off. We have to get to the root of why Susan would feel like that. And we have to, if not change the hearts, at least change the mind in the moment that will help her to understand that everything I said that day in that speech had more to do with keeping all of Atlanta intact, all of Atlanta from a co in a cooperative and collaborative space and not in a segregated place of feelings and politics, which I feel her letter did. I hope to one day have a conversation with her so that we can express our differences and we can see what's best for Atlanta and hopefully go forward in some type of allyship. But if I never do, then I have to understand that there are millions of Susans amongst us who feel this way. And simply getting Donald Trump out of office does not solve that problem. We have a 20 year fix it that we could do in this country to reverse the stem of racism, to eradicate racism, to begin to deal with the classism that racism is the mask for. And if we choose to keep infighting, if we choose to keep doing what Susan did in that moment, then we're choosing to lose. Right. And I hope that we don't choose to do that in Atlanta. I hope that we don't choose to do that in other major cities. And I hope that we can be the example in my city for how to properly cooperate and collaborate and plot, plan, strategize, organize, and mobilize together. Because if we don't, we're not just hurting black Atlanta. It's not just a threat to white Atlanta. It is a threat to all of Atlanta that we will lose our way. It is a threat to all of the state and it is a threat to all of the country. So my challenge to all of Americans, much like Baldwin, is to do some self-reflection and to figure out a way to collaborate and cooperate together and to own and be accountable for the, what the shit we bring to the table, good or bad. 
you know, and if we don't, we're just going to be the endless cycle of the blame game and the endless cycle of either overt or hidden bigotry. So we're sitting here six months after the George Floyd moment, right? I mean, we've seen, obviously, you know, we can make the list as long as we can rattle off Michael Brown and Eric Garner and Breonna Taylor and all these names. But the reality is every time what some, you know, we have these moments where there's Ferguson first and then it's, uh, it's George Floyd. But we say, man, things are going to change. Finally, the moment is here. Change is upon us, man. Like in, it's a moment of racial reckoning. We are having that moment. We're <laughs> transforming, you know, like got to happen now. Change is going to happen. But like I just asked you six months later, like is anything like do you see any like tangible signs of progress that George Floyd, you said before when you gave that speech, you were just like angry that day. Because you were describing with a clarity that a lot of people, even in that moment, did not. You were like, I watched a black man executed. He had a knee on his neck above a law enforcement officer who just executed this man on camera, knowing people were filming him, not giving a shit about being filmed. Smirking. 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 Right? So like a fucking, like a fucking zebra on the fucking savannah, you know, somewhere, right? With a lion with a lion on his neck. Absolutely. So my point is, you're like, man, a lot of black people have lost their lives to police violence, but things quite that vivid we don't get every day. Yeah. You know, that that tape, the length of it, the, the clarity of it, there's no ambiguity about what happened here. You are watching it and it seemed to galvanize people. And now it's six months later and, you know, like I ask you, I won't even put my thumb on the scale. Has anything changed? Do you see signs of progress? No matter how much any of us cry on TV, whether it's me or Van Jones, not much has changed. Qualified immunity needs to change. The 13th Amendment needs to be reamended so that it no longer allows for the excuse for slavery, so that we don't have an industry built to need private prisons or public prisons or prisoners to do everything from fight fires to give cheap labor to companies and corporations. So no, nothing has changed. Absolutely nothing has changed. Nothing has changed until on the legislative level from the grassroots up, not from the top down, but from the grassroots up, the answers come. The answers have to come from the ground up. Now, things that I'm hopeful for is seeing New York say that now instead of dispatching police on mental health calls for 911, we will have a service that dispatches health uh, mental health professionals. I think the UK has been doing that 15, 20 years. The question becomes for me, if we're the number one economy in the world, if we're the greatest version of Western civilization, why the fuck are we 20 years behind the UK? If we do not understand that what we saw in Minneapolis was a lynching, then I challenge people to go back or just Google lynching postcards where you will see a group of people around a black body, oftentimes lynched, castrated, um, oftentimes burned and see the white children that are in those crowds pointing and smiling. Those children are about 70, 80 years old now. Those children have raised children and grandchildren with the same trauma and normalcy that they saw. So when they see someone laying on the ground being executed by an agent of the state, instead of saying, why is the state executing this person without fair trial? What they're saying is, what did he do to get killed? Or he must have done something to deserve it. Or he once was a bad person years and years ago. Right? So no, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed until it's changed. I ain't lost 100 pounds till I lost 100. You know, I don't give a fuck if I lost two pounds last week. Congratulations. 
two pounds, 98 to go, fat boy. That's what my trainer told me yesterday. You know? So, so you know, so, so I, and I, and I said, and I laugh, but I want to cry because, yeah. you know, we've only been free 57 years. My mother would have only been 61 years old, which means my mother was born in apartheid. My father was born in apartheid. My grandparents lived in apartheid. Not Jim Crow. Not some cute fucking name that sounds like it comes on the Animaniacs. Apartheid. And if we do not come to the acceptance of our sins, we can never be the saints that we pretend we are or want to be. If we do not finally accept the wrongdoings, you know, if we if we don't take our accountability as a country, we're going to keep ending up in this cycle. So I, I can't say that I'm hopeful in the moment, but I'm hopeful for the future. And I don't mean the distant future. I mean next legislative sessions. The yeah. next legislative se sessions all around this country should be filled with grassroots ways, grassroots laws of radically changing the way agents of the state are allowed to engage the proletariat, no matter the color. Poor white people has as have, as have as much to lose by agents of the states being set loose on the proletariat as any black person does, yeah. right? And poor white people should stop feeling themselves above simply because they're white. Because after, if they eradicated every black person in this country, the people that were referred to as crackers by the white planter class will be the next underclass. And they will be used as such. So for me, no, nah, not much has changed, but I'm hopeful that change can happen and change can happen quickly, which is why I supported the guy I supported because Sanders was the only person coming in saying first day marijuana decriminalization, first day qualified immunity ends, first day we're going to have a special prosecutor to prosecute those. And if we as black people, I'm going to tell you this, if we are not requiring this of Joe and, and, and Kamala, then we have to be accountable in our suffering. Right. So we have to fix this. And the only way we do that is start to leverage the power of our vote locally. If Democrats want to win in the South locally, since 54% yeah. of all African-Americans live in the South, they should have to start to negotiate in your favor or you just negotiate with who's willing to do it. We started by talking, I played your, your speech, your viral moment in May, and that was very much about Atlanta and very much about Georgia. So a few months later, it's September now, and I see in my Twitter feed a tweet from Governor Brian P. Kemp of the state of Georgia yeah. that has uh, some photographs of, of him and his, his wife, the first lady of Georgia. And there's another guy on these pictures. This guy's name is Mike Render, at I, Killer Mike, it yes. says. It says, today, Marty and I had a great meeting with at Killer Mike. We discussed how small businesses in the music industry are weathering the pandemic, the value of our skilled trade workers, and our fight to end human trafficking in Georgia. We look forward to seeing him again soon, exclamation point, which predictably, you know, Got a lot of people who are like, fuck Mike, killer yeah. Mike. What the yeah. fuck's he doing? Yeah. Seeing that motherfucker, Brian Kemp, that motherfucker stole the governorship from Stacey Abrams. Yeah. You just called her a superhero. A lot of people in Georgia who have the view that Stacey Abrams is a superhero, yeah. have the view that she should have rightly been the governor. She won that race. If it wasn't for voter suppression, engineered by the Secretary of State, then Brian Kemp running for governor, setting the rules for the race he was running yeah. in. That's the view of a lot of people, a lot of your allies, a lot of your friends. And yeah. they look at that and say, what the fuck is Mike doing hanging out with Brian Kemp? It's disloyal. It's unhelpful. It's some bullshit. That's yeah. what a lot of people say. So how does one contextualize and understand your meeting with the governor? And, and how do you respond to the critics who have taken you on over that? So you give a shit how you feel. I pay taxes in this motherfucking state. If, if my taxes pay your salary, I'm going to talk to you. 
because my money needs to go to the places that I feel it's better deserved. I think that my money should go into trades programs to help boys and girls from my community become homeowners, parents, business owners, tradespeople, people that are qualified to give to Georgia and not take away. That happens with whichever governor is there. Stacy gets her governorship. She gets a fair run um, on the last run or the next run. Then I'm going to meet with her. Doesn't change that. I am a citizen of this state. I absolutely refuse not to be engaged. And in matters of who was cheating and who was not, let me say that Georgia had over 120 years of Democratic governors. And in that 120 years, guess which party the secretaries of state belonged to? The Democratic Party. That party was not always fair to us. That party was not always just to us. That party mishandled, mistreated us, used and abused us. When Clinton came to Georgia, Zell Miller, a Democratic governor, and he marched poor white boys and mostly black boys in front of fucking Stone Mountain, in front of a goddamn memorial for a bunch of fucking Confederates who, according to the Cornerstone speech, believed that the cornerstone of the Confederacy was slavery, right? Marched the prisoners there in striped suits, a Democrat. Governor and guy running for president did that. We didn't cut them off. We dealt with that governor and his subtle racism. We dealt with that president and his allowance of a crime bill that was overtly racist. How are you going to ask me as a Georgian with children who go to Georgia schools, with businesses in Georgia, with grandparents that are here who have to deal with taxes to Georgia? How am I going to not? engage the person I pay to simply say my community is suffering. This is what can be done to help the suffering. I expect you as our governor to help. And after that meeting, not only be engaged in the way that I deserve to be, meaning I'm now engaged in a trades program promotion with the leader of trades in the state. I've also am helping 70 young men and women at this point, specifically out of my community to earn trades. And we are putting together a program to bring Georgians in mass because for the next 20, 30 years, trades are going to be needed in Georgia. Everything from building roads to that new port down in Savannah, right? There are black men in Savannah that have been able to send their children to college to become doctors and lawyers because they simply drove a truck at a port because they had to trade to build. So I'm sorry if you don't like what I did, but I did what my grandmother trained me to do. My grandparents did not agree with every Atlanta mayor, but my grandmother met with everyone she could. My grandmother did not like every county commissioner, but she engaged everyone she could. My grandmother disagreed with city council and the MPU, but I'll be damned if I wasn't sitting right there in those city council meetings having to watch her engage them. Martin Luther King got the civil rights bill signed, not by John F. Kennedy, who was on my grandmother's wall looking all handsome and white like Jesus, but by Lyndon Baines Johnson, a Dixiecrat. And Andrew Young told me that when they met with him, it was the second bill, not the first one, that he said, now, I can't give you this second one. You got to make me do this one. And he's like, everybody's like, what the fuck are you talking about? I got to make you. You got to go to the streets. And you got to put the pressure on black people and your allies to put the pressure on my office to do this. So just call me the pressure applier. I cannot do this by myself. It is going to take Democrats. It is going to take progressives. It is going to take allies. It is going to take people who understand politics, engage in what we got. The last text message I just got as I'm sitting here talking to you is the governor asking about the trades program and the path that I'm on. So I'm sorry that I pissed off your day. 
I'm sorry that you wanted to cancel me and somehow it didn't work. But out of this directly in the next 20 years, my community directly will produce tradespeople. The greater community will produce tradespeople. My state will not have to import workers. My state will be able to have people grown right here in our state to fill jobs that our state needs to become the next level of business owners, homeowners, parents, teachers, preachers, politicians. And when it comes time to run for governor again, the question becomes to me, do we change the system that worked for Democrats for 120 years before Republicans started using the play if the play was used? Or are we going to let the system stay in place until we get our way? So we can use the system in the same way. Right is right and wrong is wrong is something Betty Clunch used to say to me. And what that last election showed me was the system is wrong. So rather than argue over who should or shouldn't be governor, I find it more productive as a taxpaying citizen. And I'm a millionaire. I pay too much in taxes. God damn, I pay a lot of taxes, right? <laughs> I'm going to engage whoever's controlling my money and whoever I'm paying. I'm going to engage my grassroots campaign people who all call me and said, Michael, thank you. Next Level Boys Academy. A bunch of boys meet every Saturday. Gary Davis does an amazing job. I went and spoke there last Saturday. By the time I left there, 15 boys said, I want to join that trades program. How do I do it? So that matters more to me than someone on Twitter saying, fuck you, John, for interviewing Mike. Because all Mike has to say in the words of Ice Cube, yeah, fuck you too. You know, at some point, we'll find an issue to collaborate around and you'll need me. And I'll need you and we'll figure out. And if we don't, then your personal hatred of me is greater than the greater purpose of making sure George is a better state. And we probably shouldn't have known each other, been friends or comrades anyway. So that's it for the first installment of this first ever two part episode of Hell and High Water. If you are digging on this conversation and I mean what half sane, half sober, semi-conscious person wouldn't be into this then run, don't walk, to whatever podcast app you happen to use and download the second concluding and even more exciting and engrossing installment of my conversation with the one and only Killer Mike Render. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Killer Mike for being here. If you like this episode of the podcast, please subscribe to it and leave a nice rating in the Apple Podcast app. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineer the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handle the research. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 